I wanted to follow up on one of Steve's questions about the sense of humor. I, I know uh, from your books that, that they love practical jokes, that they played practical jokes on you. And I know they have dirty words because they taught you a lot of dirty words and gave you other meanings for them mm -hmm. so you could embarrass yourself without realizing it. Um, but what other, let me give you a few examples. Um, do they tell anecdotes about silly things that their uh, uh, friends or colleagues or enemies do? Do they ever uh, sort of imitate like a clown, the behavior of somebody? Do they ridicule uh, people? Uh, do, they, do they have jokes other than practical jokes? Well, the answer to all of those questions is yes. No, I'm good. And, but let me give you some specific good. examples. <laughs> For example, their myth world, their, their telling of myths is just rich and replete with all sorts of antics of them going through the motions of such and such a character in the myth and they become, I mean, it'll entertain the whole village just watching how well a particular Yanomama can imitate or little nuances he adds in the imitation that nobody else has witnessed before. And laughter. And laugh. Oh, yeah. they really get hilarious about that. Um, how about a, a practical example of their joke? They played on me. One of their words is to have hair on your pubis. And that's called weshi. It's nothing embarrassing. They talk about it all the time. And like, I mean, they can walk up to a person and say, are you weshi? No, you can see if they're weshi. I mean, they don't have any clothes. But they knew that I didn't always catch the distinction between another word, beshi, and weshi. So they connived on this trip we were taking to a distant village and we were sitting down and resting at one point and one of them, I mean they, they'd all gotten in on this. They asked me, Shaki, wabeshi lola? I thought they said, Shagna, do you have hair on your pubis? Awe, ya beshi dodiwa? And that meant, I'm horny as hell. And they just broke up. That's really funny. Not exactly Dorothy Parker. <laughs> but wordplay. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's um, oh, one yes. of the kinds of humor that you know, they. One of the things that they do. Which I could, mm -hmm. I don't have an explanation for it. They, this is talking about recursive. They will say to me, for example, call that guy over there, asshole. And I had no idea what they were telling me to say, and so, asshole. And they'd get mad. The guy I call asshole would get really mad at me, really angry. As if the guy who told me to call him asshole didn't exist, <laughs> and I couldn't, I could never figure out why the the perpetrator of this funny thing was never had any guilt. Sounds like he maybe could have made use of a ventriloquist stuff. That's true. I mean, <laughs> Charlie McCarthy. Yeah. <laughs> was he a senator from Wisconsin? <laughs> also about words. Um, in your book, you 
mention that although of course they have words, the idea of a word was not obvious to them, and that you had to do some go to some effort to 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 get them to break their language up into into words into nouns and verbs. You, and so you, you must have read something I wrote about this because that was, yeah. that's exactly what happened. Yeah. The biggest difficulty I faced in doing my field research is to get them to realize the notion of a word in where one ended and the next one began. I, they intuitively knew that, but they, they didn't know how to explain that to me. So they'd tell me, they'd make a statement to me that would go on for five pages, and it was because I didn't know where one part of the statement ended and the next began. And I finally trained one of them, or I got one of them to understand what I was trying to do. I wanted him to say a word as a discrete component in a more complex collection of words. And I thought that was a major breakthrough, mm -hmm. and it was. That's true in, in uh, uh, non-literate peoples in general mm -hmm. and in children. Mm -hmm. that the, uh, what intuitively seems to us like a word is actually an act of, of, of metalinguistic awareness yeah. of reflecting back on language as an entity. Yeah. Yeah. And until the, I think the Middle Ages, there weren't even spaces between words. It was just written as one long uh, sequence of, of sounds, which literally is what it is. If you look at a, uh, a oscilloscope tracing of speech, yeah. there are no little no breaks between yeah. one word and the other. Ah, so the, the Anamama aren't as primitive as we think they are. They're <laughs> actually quite accurate as to, in terms of the, what the speech wave consists of. And and uh, uh, Steve Levinson has a has a hypothesis about uh, the importance of interaction with people who speak another language to simplify your own language. Mm -hmm. Very interesting idea. Nobody knows if it's true, but um, do the Yanomama have much experience uh, interacting with people who don't speak Yanomama? And and. I mean, in, the, in your case, you didn't, but you didn't have somebody to speak English with or Spanish with. I mean, have most of them heard people speaking foreign languages? Probably now, there's no Yanomama who has not ever been in the presence of a foreigner. I mean, it may, they may live in a really isolated village, but they walk three days to go to the closest mission, and they sit around and admire and fear what they see there, and they go back to their village, and, and some of the stories they tell are really amusing, and they imitate Hubbard. <laughs> they're inventing scribble, Yeah, that's what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, it's like inventing you know, three or four phones out of yeah. Spanish and Portuguese or something, and then the rest of it gibberish. And that's what they think foreign language, Spanish and Portuguese are was like. So they haven't just encountered a foreigner, they've encountered foreigners speaking their language to each other. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But within the, the Yanomama as people, it's a single language no, dialect. Like no, there are dialect differences, and some of them are large enough that I have difficulty with, without spending four or five days there to catch what, what, what's going on so I can adjust my ear to the, to the oh, I don't know, what, how you would describe it, I'm not a linguist, but the timber and the, the pitch. Technology, and, right. Uh, how much, a lot of the, these stories seem to suggest that they have a, 
difficulty in their, part of the expression, their folk anthropology, that is their concept of that someone may not speak Yanomamu and therefore has to be shouted at, or even their folk psychology. In well, this is early in my field research, and at that time, there were vast numbers of villages that had never seen foreigners, and so it wasn't unusual at that time. Now it would be unusual. But well, can I just comment on that? When I got married in Brazil, and my father, who never left Australia, came there, and when we went into you know, a small shop in a Brazilian town, and he just sort of wanders up and asks for something in English, and they look incomprehensible at him. So what he did was he elevated and started speaking English louder, and I sort of wincing. But um, it, it, it seems to be a, a reaction. There's a gene for that. <laughs> One question that I have is, well, the blunt way to put it is, why didn't they kill you? Or the, the better way of putting it is, what did they think you were doing? I mean, I mean, we know about anthropologists. They knew about missionaries. You weren't a missionary. Well, not even most of them knew about missionaries. So, but, I, I mean, I was trying to imagine if, if, if somebody who looked quite different from me set up a pup tent on the corner of my street and started <laughs> asking me questions, that would be very, very puzzling and upsetting. Yeah. And uh, I don't think I'd be very friendly to the whole thing. Tell, tell us more about how, why, why, how were you able to live in their company so well and so long? That's a really complex question, but I have an answer. First of all, you understand the relationship between the goose and the golden egg? Oh, yeah. Well, I was the goose. Yeah. And if you wanted any more golden eggs, you didn't kill the goose. So, to a certain extent, the fact that I could provide useful things to them, not only steel tools like machetes, but also medicines, they really caught on very quickly that the medicines that I brought, for example, tetracycline to put in the, their eyes to cure the infected eyes. It was almost miraculous. The next day they would have 100% cure from tetracycline. So I brought useful things to them. Secondly, word of my presence leaked inland. And toward the end of my second year of field research, there was no place I could go where they didn't know me. And I'd arrive at their village thinking, I'm going to really scare the pants off of these people. They haven't seen any foreigners before. I'd walk into the village and they'd say, what the hell took you so long? We've been waiting for two years for you to get here. <laughs> so so they, they were looking forward to my visits. I had a good reputation. But, I mean, this led, leads to the accusation that your presence actually affected their behavior and giving them machetes and so on. I mean, is that, you must have given a lot of thought to that. Yes, I have. And it's, um, they, I have detractors, polite critics, critics. Yes. and most of these accusations against me are just invented. Yeah. That is a testable proposition. Why don't you go out and provide me the evidence that what I've done to the Anamama is so radically different from what they have done 
there's, there's, the Anamama are very valuable now as a commodity. They are the largest, most interesting and romanticized tribe in the entire Amazon basin, maybe in the world. They live in an area that is threatened by ecological destruction. So there are people who are interested in saving the rainforest and people who are interested in saving the natives. And these groups collaborate with each other. Everybody wants the Yanomama in their portfolio. I think it's fairly obvious to, to all of us that there's no incompatibility with an honest description of the way they live their lives, which of course overlaps with the way that every uh, culture is with, with their lives, is violence in every culture, right. and the ideal of preventing them from being exploited or, uh, or otherwise harmed. No, that's a good point to make. Most anthropologists that I know who are really scientifically oriented are also humanistic, and they see no incompatibility with being concerned for the welfare of the people that they studied and making accurate, repeatable observations on the same people. There is no incompatibility between science and humanism. Would you um, imagine uh, discovering a behavior, a practice, a policy in a tribe that was so repugnant to uh, Western sensibilities that you would decide not to write about that in, in, in your uh, writings? Well, the Anamama practice infanticide occasionally, and it's for a variety of reasons, one of them being if they suspect that the newborn infant is deformed and it can go, be traced right back to parental investment. Why invest in a losing prospect? Let's terminate the infant now and start anew. Another example of infanticide is, uh, this is even rarer, that some guy was cuckolded by or suspected he was cuckolded by some other guy and he puts pressure on his wife to kill the, the new infant. That's not very common, but it, uh, I've heard of it. And I began reporting, as soon as I learned this, that the Yanomama practiced infanticide. And I didn't make a big case out of it. But when I learned that a diputado in the Venezuelan government, which is basically a, like a representative or a senator, had learned that there were people in her country that were killing their own children, she wanted to go in and arrest these people and put them in jail. So I stopped reporting on anything I, any information I acquired about Yanomama infanticide. Not because it was disgusting to Westerners, because it, I'll bet if you looked at the abortion rate in Venezuelan middle class women, their rate of abortion would be much, much higher than Yanomami infanticide. Well, in fact, in, historically, I've seen an estimate that it's averaging over many peoples, and it's a, a, a average of a lot of variation uh, underneath it, that the uh, traditional infanticide rate was about 15% of live births, which mm. is pretty close to the... In Western culture? No, no, in, in, uh, in non-Western cultures. Mm. Uh, which is pretty close to the abortion rate until recently. Oh, really? It's come down. But, uh, so there is something to the idea that uh, abortion 
uh, serves a similar purpose to right. what that's right. I mean, did it's a definitional process. matter so don't get up uptight about you know mama practicing infanticide when your sister or your wife has had an abortion I mean if you want to make a moral issue out of it let's include everybody coming back so you talked about you gave them tetracycline mm -hmm. and machetes, but I'm interested in what you needed to get from them. How did you feed yourself when you were there? Did well, you I, bring in your food with you? Or I, initially you? I did. I mean, I naively tried to live, live off of canned sardines and peanut butter and stuff like that. But the more I lived with them, it was just too much of a hassle, so I just ate a lot of wild food and buy, I bought plantains and bananas and some of that. Their produce was excellent. And you bought it, so you I would I would trade them, say, some crackers okay. or some little glass beads. I didn't pay a lot, of them, but they had a huge abundance of plantains. And I mean, if you look at it from the point of view of a modern supermarket, you know, I was getting you know fifty pounds of bananas for the equivalent of one penny or something, <laughs> but they they don't last very long. I'd buy a big bunch of bananas from the other mama and they'd say, oh, sell it to And then they'd eat all of them. Because <laughs> they would get right faster than I could eat them. You, you, you must have taken a lot of fish hooks and a lot of machetes and a lot of drugs in with you? No, no, no. Don't sell you. You get resupplied from time to time, or you just well, each yeah, trip. I, each trip, you'd come in with something. Yeah, uh, uh, well, the longest I spent with the Anamama right. was my first trip, and that yeah. was something like 17 months. Yeah, yeah. But during that 17 months, I got out to Caracas, I think twice, and most of the time was being spent buying goodies to bring back to the field, with me, like food and coffee and cigarettes. And, no, I didn't bring any beer bag. And, and fish hooks. <laughs> and fish hooks. But then in the United States, I discovered these little tiny Chinese shops that would sell fish hooks by the 10,000. And you could get a lot of fish hooks for just a few cents. And they're divisible. I mean, it's like money. You can divide it and make change out of it. And so I'd pay the kids with fish hooks. They just loved them. And little pieces of nylon fish line. And the, the parents loved it because kids were doing something useful and contributing to the larder. I mean, I didn't change their economy, but it was one way that I was expressing utility from their point of view. And did they ever ask you how these were made? No. Could, could you make a fish hook? <laughs> no, I couldn't. No. The, the, the story, or the accusation that until Shagnon got there, the Anamama had no, no steel tools, no fish hooks, no machetes, no shotguns, no, and he brought all of this. That's just nonsense. If you were to, in fact, Padre Coco, a Catholic priest, a Salesian priest, told me about, he want, he, I, I got a Bolex camera, and he wanted me to make a film of him and his mission. And the most important thing he wanted me to know, he got all of his receipts out of the book going back 10 years, and he listed all of the steel axes that he gave, and there were hundreds and hundreds of 
all of the machetes that he gave, thousands of them. He was an Italian. He'd go back to Italy and he'd bring 55-gallon barrels of teeny little glass beads, which cost him nothing in Italy, but they're like gold in Latin America. He'd bring them back by the 55-gallon containers. So, well, the question isn't really who brought these goods in, but did the presence of the goods change their way of life? Uh, well, did you ever try to beat a tree down with a wood, wooden club? <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. answer is yes. The answer is yes. I mean, a steel yeah. tool is much, much superior to a stone tool. Or, or, well, the Anamamas, they tell me that back in, when their ancestors were here, they didn't have axes and machetes. And they had to make gardens by burning the trees at the trunk, and they would die, and all the leaves would fall down, and they planted between the, the barren trees. So slash and burn, or not? Well, no, it wasn't slash. Yeah, just burn. But did, did they have stone tools before they? They find archaeological stone cells, which the spirits left behind. But they don't have a supply have, of no, uh, no. flint or no, material no. for mm -hmm. so. And how, they how did they make fire before? What's that? How did they make fire? With a fire drill. Fire drill. Yeah. And when I was there for the first year of my life, maybe two years, every Yanomama man had a little bamboo carrying case, a section of bamboo that's hollow. And it would have extra arrow points, because if you shoot a certain tip, kind of arrow, it breaks every time. So you have to replace it and you have to carry spares. And on top of the, uh, strapped to that bamboo carrying, point carrying case, a quiver, which was worn on a strap around a piece of cord around the neck, there was always a chunk of wood that was cylindrical with uh, evidence that it had been used to light a fire. And they would, I mean, that was their matches. <clears throat> and they could, they could do it fairly quickly. When at, at matches were introduced, those disappeared. And when aluminum pots were introduced, their pottery disappeared. They made a pot that was about that high, narrow at the bottom, and it flared up on the sides. And they were so crudely fired that they were, I mean, you'd touch, if they'd fall over, they'd smash. So the, they carried them in pack baskets. And they made these big baskets that the women harvested their produce in, the bananas, and, and when they moved from one place to another, they carefully packed this crudely fired clay pot in the basket and then surround it with vine hammocks so it wouldn't wiggle. And they took very good care of those, but when aluminum pot, I mean, aluminum pans came in, they just stopped doing it. And for a while, you could find chunks of their clay pots being used in their drug taking because clay pot is a much nicer service to grind their drugs on than an aluminum cooking pot. But this, this gets back to the question of, uh, since it, that you're saying that, they, uh, that it does change the way they live their lives. Oh, yes. but I'm then, not saying that I didn't change yeah. their lives. But in terms of what they that, That's us, inevitable for yeah. any anthropologist. Right. But in terms of what they, I mean, how would this modify the generalizations that you can make from what you observe in their behavior to the way our ancestors lived, or the, the uh, environment of evolutionary adaptiveness uh, to which our emotions and ways of thinking are, are Probably involved. very little. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think. And it depends on what what kind of item you're introducing to their culture. If you introduce a shotgun in, yeah, that has a profound effect on how villages get along with each other. I mean, if the guys in the next village over have shotguns and you have shotguns, it increases the mortality rate, but you're not going to pick a fight with a village that has shotguns and you only have bows and arrows. So, I mean, it depends on the kind of product of Western industrial culture that you're talking about and whether or not it would have a perceptible, observable effect on the state of nature or how humans... So where do machetes and axes then come in, this whole issue? Well, certainly after the Industrial Revolution. Uh, yes, yeah, but, but um, <coughs> changing the nature of their warfare or their interaction. Probably machetes didn't change the nature of their warfare except in the sense that it made gardening more efficient and therefore villages could get larger. And their warfare, in fact, is best, I mean, one dimension of their warfare is the number of people who are involved in it. And people, the size that a village can be is, in a sense, a function of how much land they can clear. And they can clear a lot more land with a machete and an axe than they can with a stone and a tool. And with less cooperation, individuals can do more with an axe than cut a tree down. In what sense do... Well, in the old days, did they have to have the whole family oh, yeah. well, meet on that tree for a long time? Well, I don't know. I never saw that happen. No, no, but, yeah. My hunch is that I doubt <coughs> that the... Assuming that felling trees or, or making clearing involved burning the chunks of trees, I think the same fraction of the population, the adult males between, say, 14 and 25, would still be doing work. And a lot of the, the um, violence goes back well before the introduction of machetes. Oh, yeah. Cultural memory yeah, and yeah. Uh, tales of, of uh, the way they used to live. Right. Well, if you, if you read Helena Valero and uh, this book by Mark Ritchie about the old shamans and that lived in the Anamama area before missionaries got in, they're still fighting with machetes and axes way back, you know, 100 years ago. No, I don't know. I, mean, I seriously doubt that steel tools had any impact whatsoever on their warfare. Do, what's the, is the main weaponry uh, bows and arrows? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and they have yeah. poison? They have curare. Yeah. And it's a very poor form of curare. What they do is, I mean, a lot of tribes in the Amazon basin can make really lethal curare. You scratch yourself. <laughs> Frog poison, I mean, rubbing an yeah, yeah. arrow on a certain kind of frog that exudes a very toxic substance that's lethal. Anyway, the Anomama have a really crude way of making the, the, the curare is a mixture of the curare and a bunch of other stuff. And I don't know what, what the other stuff does. They, they say it adds adhesive qualities to it, it makes it sticky and stick to the arrow. And when they get done with the air, they put a whole bunch of pencil length, well, about that long, pieces of uh, palm wood. And it's hard, it's hard as a rock, the palm wood is. And they weaken it by cutting it every inch or so. So when it hits something, it breaks off. And they put poison on it. And when they shoot a monkey, for example, and the monkey gets pierced with the 
curare to Darrow, it breaks off and leaves the, the point inside of the monkey, and the monkey just eventually relaxes. It, it relaxes, curare relaxes muscles. Paralytic, yeah. Do they, yeah. do they use it against each other as well? Yes. Same, same technique. Yeah. But they get the curare from what's uh, the spine? A bind. A bind. And they, uh, does it make the meat dangerous no. to eat? No, you can eat curare. Huh? Uh, apparently, when you ingest yeah. it, it doesn't, yeah. at least John Mama curare doesn't. Yeah. I've eaten lots of monkey with curare. <laughs> Protein gets broken down. It's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a, a, an antagonist to the uh, neuromuscular junction, so it just yeah. paralyzes or skeletal. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned um, that you know the the heavy work of clearing trees yeah. was being done by the adult men, but how do you feel the balance of the sexual division of labor is is there? Uh, well, you know, women, they, women do a lot of collecting of plants and fish and little tiny shrimps and things like that. And they, they do a lot of useful additions to the larder, but the men do most of the meat hunting and game hunting, and that requires a lot of endurance and running and being hindered by babies. I've got one more question for you. What, uh, back again to what they thought of you. What did they think you were doing? Why did they think you were there? It wasn't to hand out medicine and fish hooks. Uh, I mean, uh, well, did you try to explain why why you would come and do all of this? No, they they arrived at their own conclusion, yeah. which I thought was very logical. I'm trying to learn how to become human. <laughs> very good. <laughs>